Amen. Thank you for that worship team. Thank you for that reminder that we need to remember who God is, who Christ is, and then that helps inform us to know who we are and how we can live. And that actually that whole set really ties into the passage that we're going to be looking at today as we study and look at David and his reaction to some uh, certain events that happened to him. Well, again, good morning, everybody. Uh, If you are new, if you're visiting, I'm Pastor Eric. I'm the children's pastor. Uh, Pastor Brian is, uh, he's out of town. He's on his way back um, from a week serving in Cuba, training pastors. And uh, in his absence, I have the privilege and honor of um, preaching and walking through the text with you here this morning. I do want to give a quick shout out and say a big thank you to Jason Lowe, who preached last week on the passage of uh, first in, in First Samuel chapter 25, and he did a great job exegeting and preaching and teaching that passage. And I really appreciated his illustration of when he was in fifth grade and how he sought justice by putting a mark on another person's paper. I love that. I love it. If you, if you didn't hear it, go back, watch the video. It's a great sermon on waiting for God's justice. Well, here we are in an exciting place in chapter one of 2 Samuel. Now, a lot has happened since chapter 25 with uh, Abigail and Nabal to where we are today. But before we get there, I have a question for you. Have you ever experienced a tumultuous time of transition in your life? (laughs) By the chuckles, I'm going to go with a big yes. Okay. I remember my first experience where I had a close-up view of a, of a time of transition for a group of people that wasn't necessarily smooth, but rather tumultuous. And I was 19 years old. Uh, I was young. I had a full head of hair. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, I was at Bible school, and I was attending this smaller church. And the pastor who had been there, who I started, who, who was pastoring when I first arrived, was in the transition of leaving that church. And it wasn't under the best or most ideal circumstances. And so I find my, found myself at 19 years old observing more or less from the outside this transition that was happening, this rather tumultuous transition within a community. And I noticed the reaction of several, several different people. And there were several different reactions. Some people that I witnessed, they, they immediately started taking sides to, who, to the pastor who was leaving or the people who were staying. Other people were overtaken with sadness and grief. Other people fell into points of apathy and were, just didn't care and didn't want to do anything. Some people were becoming angry and bitter. Some people were doubling down in their efforts, trying to keep the, all those plates spinning. Some honored the pastor who was leaving while others ignored him. During this tumultuous time of transition, everyone had different responses to those around them. And they had different responses to the leadership around them. And I was baffled as to what I was experiencing. Oftentimes, transition can leave us puzzled, confused, 
wondering what steps we need to take. What are the next steps that, that, that are best for me and for my community and the people that I am around? So the question that I have for you this morning is what would you do in a tumultuous time of transition? Maybe for some of those, some of you here this morning, the question is maybe what would I have done differently in the last time of transition? But the question that we're going to be asking is what does a person who's, who's pursuing God's own heart do in times of tumultuous transition? So here we are, and if you have your Bibles, you can open to the book of, first, of 2 Samuel chapter 1 where we have a transition happening. Now, as you're turning there, let me catch you up to speed of what has happened since chapter 25, all right? Chapter 25, David has this encounter with Abigail and Nabal. After that, chapter 26, David has another opportunity to kill King Saul. God brings him right into his presence, and David has the opportunity to kill King Saul and to take his position as king, and yet he spares Saul's life. And after Saul says, I'm so grateful, I'm so thankful, I will honor you, David, what does David do in response? He runs away. <laughs> he flees. And where does he flee? He flees to, of all people, the Philistines. And he hides out and hangs out with the Philistines. Well, while he's hiding out with the Philistine, kings, the Philistines are getting ready to go to battle with Israel. Saul gets a little nervous. He's a little worried. The Spirit of God has been removed from him. So what does he do? He seeks out a pagan medium to seek counsel and wisdom. Was that the right thing to do? It's a big no. And so as a result, Saul goes to battle against the Philistines. And in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, the final chapter, Saul, along with his son Jonathan and a few other sons, is defeated and dies. And so it is in this context that we enter into 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now, originally when this was written, and it was one big long scroll. It wasn't two different scrolls, two different books. It was one book. But here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're, st we're going to see David's reaction to when he finds out that King Saul has died. But before we start reading the text, I need you to, to work with me for a second. I need you to envision and to think about this scenario. And mind you, we've, been, we've taken a couple of months to get to this point. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes you feel like, oh man, this is taking a while to get through First and Second Samuel. Does it feel like that? Well, guess what? For David, it's been about 14 years since he was anointed getting to this point, okay? So... Just be thankful it hasn't taken us 14 years to get to this point, okay? But here we are. David has been waiting f nearly 14 years since he was anointed to be king. And suddenly, the position opens up. Suddenly, there's no one in the way of him becoming king. You're David. You've been waiting 14 years. What is your reaction? What do you do in this circumstance? What we're going to see, that this chapter, and actually the next four chapters, are written for us and the reader to understand why David is not only a good replacement to be the king, but why he is 
the legitimate king and the legitimate successor. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, God explained to Samuel, I'm done with Saul. He's after his own ways. I am seeking and I'm anointing a man who is pursuing, who is after my own heart. And today, we get to see why David was a man after God's heart. We get to see why he is the legitimate successor, the next in line. We're not only going to see a legitimate king's response to a turbulent, tumultuous transition, but we are going to see how a person who is after God's heart reacts in those difficult times of transition. So before we read, will you join me as we pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word? Father, we are eager to to hear from you. We ask that your Holy Spirit will move among this place. We ask your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, in our minds. In this moment, may your living word transform us and change us. Some of us here this morning need encouragement. Some of us are in times of difficult transition. Some of us are about to go through something like that. Some of us need a little exhortation. We need to be pushed. We need to be challenged. And Father, I know that you know what we need because we are your children. So speak to us in a very clear, relevant way this morning as we read your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing that we see David do is actually before he even finds out that Saul has died. And that's in verse 1. Verse 1, it says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. That's a fun word, by the way, Ziklag. Go ahead, say it, say it. Ziklag, all right, you don't get to say fun words all the time. And so here, the first thing that we see David do is he remained obedient to God. Verse 1, David is simply remaining obedient and doing the things that he was responsible and called to do this whole time. Now, I don't know about, I don't know what your calendars look like. You probably don't have go off to battle, defeat Amalekites in your calendar. However, for David, for the one who was anointed to be king, who was a leader and going to be a leader of a nation, it was his responsibility to lead some of those um, people into battle, to protect the people, and to lead the people. And what we see here in the first verse of of chapter 1 is that David is remaining obedient to what God had commanded him and people in that leadership. In fact, what we see is that he returned from striking down the Amalekites. Now, I don't know if that word sounds familiar. Probably not. Not what you use every day when you're talking with your friends at work. So how about them Amalekites, right? But the Amalekites are a very important group of people in First and Second Samuel. Because they were a people who God had commanded Saul to go to battle, to defeat, and to completely wipe out. Because they were destroying Israel and leading Israel away from God. And Saul disobeyed God. It was one of his first acts of disobedience and rebellion against God. And he didn't wipe them out, even though he was called to. Which actually led to Saul's um, anointing to be taken away. 
Well, David is remaining faithful and obedient to the call that God had given. And he went to battle and he defeated the Amalekites. So he's remaining obedient despite everything that has been happening over the last 14 years. The last nearly seven years, he's been on the run, hiding. Things have been chaotic. And, and during times of chaos, obedience isn't our first response. As I was thinking about this act of obedience, I thought of a great, one of my favorite movies, a great movie from the past, Karate Kid, the original, 1984. Anyone seen it? Uh, have, yes, there we go. We have Mr. Miyagi. We have uh, Daniel, um, Daniel LaRusso, right? And he's being attacked, and he has this issue, he has this, this, this problem where people keep beating him up, and he wants, he wants to be able to defend himself. And he finds this man, Mr. Miyago, who, who, who can train him. And finally, after begging over and over and over, he, the, he says, yes, I will train you. Now, you can imagine Daniel's real excited, right? He's like, all right, here we go. I'm ready to, like, break some boards and do some stuff. And what does he tell Daniel to do? Wash the cars. That's right. I want you to wash all the cars, and you're going to wax them. Now, how many of you out there like waxing cars? Good. We have a, a, a same, same group of people. But when he waxed, what was he supposed to do? Wax on, wax off. And then he took him over to a fence, and he said, paint the fence, but with your wrist. Up, down. Up, down. Paint the house. Left, right. Left, right. Sand the deck. Left, right. And, and Daniel had to do this over and over, day after day. And there's this great training montage. Not like Rocky where he's going up any stairs, but he's simply washing and waxing and painting over and over, obedient to what his instructor told him. And he's getting frustrated and he's about ready to walk away. And then all of a sudden he says, Daniel, son. And he comes over and he says, how do you wax a car? Wax on, wax off. And suddenly his trainer throws a punch, and he blocks it. He throws a kick, and he blocks it. And all of Daniel's obedience through that time finally made sense. It clicked. It came together. Because Daniel was obedient, eventually it paid off, and it prepared him for what was ahead. So too is the case for King David. David was obedient to God, even when it didn't make sense. Even when the king of Israel was pursuing, he was obedient to God's call in his life. And it didn't make sense at all times, but it prepared him for the day when he would become king. When things are crazy around us, obedience isn't our first tendency. We've experienced this in the last three years, going through a pandemic when, when there was a great, a huge time of transition, there wasn't exactly a model of obedience around us. Rather, there was pillaging and rioting, right? Or sometimes that might be the aggressive take on times when, when times are tumultuous. Sometimes when there's transition, we can take a more passive approach. Perhaps the email goes out to the office that jobs are going to be lost. There's a new manager, a new boss coming in. The response of a lot of people can be very passive. Well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to work hard. I'm not going to work hard if I don't know if I'm going to have a job tomorrow. And we simply back off rather than 
remaining obedient to our daily call to action, to our responsibilities. At home, in turbulent times, when voices start to rise, rather than acting in obedience and showing love and patience and kindness, I don't want to be the first one to have to practice those things. I would much much rather be disobedient. You see, it's the opposite to what we have a tendency to do. But in tumultuous times, we need to remain obedient to God's daily call in our life. And this is why David was a man after God's own heart, because he obeyed in tumultuous times. So we see his first reaction is actually an action that he's been doing for quite some time. He gets back from being obedient. And in verses 2 through 10, we are introduced to an interesting person, a messenger, who has the news about Saul's death. Read with me, starting in verse 2. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he had come to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. He answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who was, who was told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. An interesting message from an interesting messenger. Now, at first glance, it seems rather straightforward. But as you dig into the text and you look, and unfortunately we don't have the luxury of looking at the narrated account in chapter 31 of what happened in, Paul, in Saul's death and to compare it with what the Amalekite messenger is saying here. But what I need you to do, and you can do some homework when you go home, but read chapter 31 and you'll find that the narrator who gives the account of Saul's death, that account is different from what the Amalekite says. And at first you might be saying, whoa, what's going on here? Why don't they line up? Why aren't they exactly the same? Causes a little little anxiety in there. But it should cause a little anxiety because it tells us that something is a little sketch to this messenger. Something is a little bit off. We don't fully know what to trust and what really happened. There is a good chance that he was on Mount Gilboa where Saul was. And he obviously had the crown and the armlet in his hands to give to David. But we find out a few things about this messenger that cause us to pause. One, his words are not wholly truthful. Two, he's an Amalekite. There it is again, Amalekite. By now, you ought to be saying in your mind, Amalekite. 
that's wrong. It, it ought to bring up some, some feelings, some, some emotions, because Amalekites, well, are they supposed to be there? They're not supposed to be there. And so this messenger is an, Amal- an Amalekite who embellishes his story to impress a new king. Now, interestingly enough, there's a little poetic, some might say poetic justice. If you go off of our sermon from last week where Jason talked about divine justice, we see that there's a little bit of irony in what's happening here. You see, Saul lost his kingdom and his kingship because he disobeyed the order to destroy the Amalekites. And here we see that it is an Amalekite who is ending and destroying King Saul and his kingship. It was because Saul um, had taken plunder from the Amalekites that he lost his kingdom. And here we see an Amalekite taking the plunder from Saul, his crown and his armlet, the symbol of his kingship and reign. Saul had been ordered to kill the Amalekites, and now he was ordering an Amalekite to kill him. Divine justice is seen. So here we are. Saul's obeying day to day, doing what he's called to do. And he gets this message. Again, I ask you, if you were David, what would you do? You've been waiting 14 years for this moment. You find out that the king is gone. What is your reaction? What are you doing? I don't know about you, but I'm ready to party. I'm ready to celebrate. I've been faithful. I've been patient. I've been waiting. Let's get this kingship on. Right? Is that what happens? Let's read what he does in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David mourned the loss of leadership. David mourned the loss of leadership. This passage has very little to deal do with Saul's death, and it has everything to do with David's magisterial kingly response to his death. This is the only place in the Old Testament where, where all three of mourning, weeping, and fasting are all mentioned in one verse together. And it's noting the depth of grief and sorrow that was in David's heart at this time. And so David mourned the loss. And because he mourned the loss, the others who were with him also mourned the loss. I don't think that would have been everyone's inclination to mourn the death of Saul. David had 600 men who were following him, who were supporters of him, who've been saying, David, you are the rightful king. We got to get you into the rightful spot. We're ready. And by the way, David, we've been sleeping in caves a lot. We could really use a nice warm bed. Why don't you take that position now that it's open? They were ready to celebrate. They wanted to stop running. They wanted to stop hiding. They wanted to set their leader into his place of authority. But they followed David and they mourned with David. But why did David mourn? Why did David mourn? David understood 
Not only the humiliation that it had brought to Saul in his death, but the humiliation that it brought to the nation and the humiliation it brought to God. And you see, that was more important, that David would mourn and grieve over that than using that as an opportunity in the moment to grandstand. One theologian um, put it this way. He said, God's rebellious servants should be lamented because it shatters God's ideal for the individual. Often causes innocent people to suffer as well and brings shame to the entire covenant community. You see, our first response might be take advantage of the scenario. Insert yourself. Put yourself there. But David understood what had just happened. The man who was anointed by God to lead Israel just suffered a humiliating death in the face of the enemy. And in that humiliating death, an army and the surrounding people were not only humiliated, but also suffered loss. And beyond that, the bigger picture, now the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, were mocking and laughing at Israel, saying, look at you, your God is weak, your God can't defend you. And that was reason to mourn the death of a rebellious servant of God. How quickly are we to, to jump out and to celebrate at the loss or the death of our enemy? How quickly are we to laugh at and ridicule the enemy, the opposing side, when they fall? When the reaction ought to be one of mourning and grief for what has truly happened. There is an experience that happened in our area in the last yeah, couple decades where something similar in, within the church happened, where a, a very prominent leader, very controversial leader, fell. And it was, the, the you might have heard of a podcast, The Rise and Fall um, of Mars Hill, but there was a, a large church that was in the Seattle area, and it had a, a pastor who was rather controversial. I remember when I was in my undergrad, everyone's like, oh man, Mars Hill, did you hear that? Like, that pastor, he's, he's like doing, he's pushing the edge, like he's, he's interesting. A lot of controversy stirred. People didn't know what to think. And then, a few years later, we hear the stories that the church was imploding. And I remember so many people who did not like what Mars Hill was doing were celebrating this fact. They were rejoicing. And they were saying, it's about time. He needs to go. He, he's overdue. He was an embarrassment. And they were celebrating the fall of the pastor. Meanwhile, look at the bigger picture. Thousands of people who attended that church felt burned, were devastated, and hurt, even to this day. Step back even further, the news made national news, public news. Everyone around the country was talking about how this church in Seattle couldn't hold it together. What an embarrassment, what a laughing stock. And for a time, the church became this was seen as this organization, this group of people who claim to love and they can't even get along. Now, I ask you, is that something worth celebrating? You see, in times of tumultuous transition, one of our responses needs to be mourning for the truth of the hurt 
of what happens and what's going on. And David saw this because David was more focused on God's ideal and God's glory than his own ideal and his own glory. And so David mourned the loss of leadership. And this is why David was a man after God's own heart. Because he mourned the loss of leadership. And finally, we see the third thing that David does. Read with me verses 13 through 16. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Question. How many of you out there, that's the first time you read that verse, that passage? Because I don't know about you, but that's a little shocking. That's a little, is that a little troubling? I was, I was joking around with uh, Pastor Brian and Jason. They got all the passages up to this point where David spared the lives of wicked people. And I get the passage where David kills a seemingly innocent man. I'm like, come on, Brian, what's up with that? How do we reconcile this? What's going on here? So is our third point, what do we do in tumultuous times? Kill the messenger. No, okay. That is not the point. That is not what we are saying. But we need to understand something about the messenger, and we need to understand something about the scenario and what's happening. Why did David have this messenger killed? Well, as I had mentioned before, this man is not in, as innocent as one might think. Remember, he's lying. There's something sketchy going on with his words. But more importantly, he is who? Part of what tribe? Yes, an Amalekite. He's an Amalekite who's dishonest. He's also an Amalekite who had the audacity to kill the Lord's anointed. Now, this is something that David could have done twice. That's right. Twice Saul was brought into the presence of David and he could have taken his life himself. And David had the rightful authority to take that position. And yet David did not take advantage of that scenario. And yet here we have an Amalekite who had the audacity to kill the Lord's anointed. And finally, David was simply keeping in, keeping with God's command to A, destroy all the Amalekites, just like he had, God had told um, Saul. And David was simply obeying God's law that said, as a man has done, so it should be done to him. And finally, we also see that there is a, a political edge to this in that while David is, is showing that he was not the one in support of taking Saul's life, but rather that he was there respecting and defending Saul in his name, in his reign. Because, not because Saul was a good person, but because Saul had been appointed by God. And so, despite everything about David's life leading up to this opportunity, this new vacancy that opened, David respected the man, 
that God had placed as king. And he respected Saul and respected and honored his name and would not let anyone trash his name. You see, even a thousand years before the Apostle Paul would give the command to us to submit to authority, to governing authorities, even while under the reign of Nero, David exemplified that same quality and respect for Saul. David showed respect to the position of leadership. He struck down the Amalekite messenger to show respect to God's anointed. So, the obvious question for us today then is, do we respect the positions of authority and leadership in our lives? Whether it be in our own jobs at work or the governing authorities over us. Maybe we're not celebrating the assassination of the enemy, but do we take part in the slander of the appointed official's name? Do we take part in the slander of the boss at work who comes across as selfish or ignorant? Do we take opportunities to show disrespect to the leaders or the authorities in our lives? You see, this is what made David a man after God's own heart. He respected the position of leadership that God placed over his life. So here we come at the end of this passage, and we see the actions of a man who is after God's own heart in the time of a very tumultuous transition of power. He chose to obey God at all times. He chose to mourn the loss of a leader, and he chose to respect the leadership that was appointed in his life. You see, when we face tumultuous circumstances, times of transition, we typically stop the obedience. We forget to mourn, and we don't respect those who are in authority over us. But the heart of a person who is after God's heart will make the choice to obey, to mourn the loss, and to respect the authority. We'll all face tumultuous times of transition in our lives, if you haven't already. Whether it's on the larger scale of national leaders or shrunk down to the scale that fits within your workplace or your home, there will be times of transition. You may find yourself on the peripheral looking in, or you might find yourself in the middle of that storm. But this passage opens our eyes as to why David was a man after God's own heart. His heart wasn't after his own kingdom. His heart wasn't after his own gain. David's heart was after the ideals of God's ways. David chose the path to follow God in his ways in his life because he knew that God was the king of kings, the one that could be trusted. And he, in light of that, was simply his vessel. So in difficult times of transition, we need to remain obedient to God, mourn the loss of leadership, and continue to respect the position of leadership, even when everything around us goes and points in the other direction. I just want to close with this little story. That church that I was at, that little church, remember when I got to witness firsthand the tumultuous time of transition? I had no idea what was going on. It was chaos. 
There wasn't always respect. Initially, there wasn't any mourning. There wasn't always obedience. But when the new pastor came on board, the first thing that he did with the church blew me away. I couldn't believe. He spent uh, two or three months with the church going through a series, a book series on Sunday mornings. And it was a smaller church, which means everybody knows everybody, which means you're always up in everybody's business, right? And he took that church and they went through a whole series on conflict and mourning. He took the time as a church, as a community, to mourn over what had just happened. To be honest and real with the situation that, listen, we're not all fans of what might have just gone down here, but we're not going to cover up and ignore the fact that there are hurt people, there are broken people. We're not going to cover it up and just move on. They took the time in that tumultuous transition to remain obedient and to mourn. And you know what happened? Months later, in that small church where people's feelings got hurt, no one left. I was at that church for another two years, and every person stayed there, serving together, remaining faithful and obedient to God's commands. Because in that time of transition, they obeyed, they mourned, and they respected their leadership. God can do amazing things when we pursue his kingdom and not our own. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to, to, to read your word, to see what you have to speak into our lives. And we recognize that our hearts really push against what we see here today. It's not intuitive for us to, to want to maintain obedience when there's chaos going around. We'd rather be aggressive and do our own thing. We'd rather just kind of back off and, and let things just happen but you call us to obedience. You call us to recognize the pain and, and, and mourn the loss around us. And you call us, Father, to always show respect to the leaders in, in, in our lives. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to empower us in these times of transition so that we can ultimately honor you and bring glory to your name and build your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.